All right, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab that this morning. You're going to John chapter 3 if you need a Bible. There are some Bibles there on the chairs around you. If you're using one of those, go to page 696. Page 696, John chapter 3. Probably one of the most well-known uh, chapters in the Bible, and particularly some of the verses, really just one of the verses is very well known, and so we're going to be looking at that today. So if, once you get to John chapter 3, you can find where verse 16 starts, because that's ultimately where we're, we're going to land. And so um, I want to put a phrase up here for you to start thinking about, because it's, it's going to be one we're going to have to unpack. The gospel is broad enough to include the worst of sinners and narrow enough to exclude the most righteous of persons. The gospel is broad enough to include the worst of sinners and narrow enough to exclude the most righteous of persons. Now, I'm going to leave that up for just a moment as we, we kind of get our way into John 3, let you chew on that. That's more than I would normally put up for a, a statement to try to have you remember, but, but as we unpack it, I hope what you're going to see is, is how, how, how this makes uh, sense and how, how we're coming to that conclusion from the verses we're, we're going to be looking at. So John chapter 3 we have looked at John before, a couple weeks ago, in John chapter 1. And in fact, we're going to be in John again next week, and we'll be in John 6. And so we've gotten a, a, few, a little bit more exposure to the gospel of John. You might remember we talked about um, the different gospels at the front of your New Testament. There's four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. How Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we call the synoptics because they're similar. They have similar stories, uh, a lot of the similar details. They're just written from different uh, viewpoints of people uh, and to different audiences. And that's how you account for many of the differences that come up in, say, some of the same stories that have different details. But John stands kind of apart from those three and that John is, is written one later and it's got a completely different theme on the way that it's developed. And it's written to both Jewish people and, and non-Jewish people. And John actually tells us at the very end of his book why he writes his book. In John chapter 20, he'll tell us that, that he writes about these signs that Jesus did. And the book of John is tracking some of the signs that Jesus did. Not all of them, but some of them. And he's saying that these things were written so that you may believe. Right? He's very forthright about his purpose in writing. And so John, as he's including stuff in his gospel, he's writing so that as, as his readers uh, read this, or if they're listening to it being read, they hear it, they're considering the things they're hearing, and hopefully what God is going to use those things for is to lead them to belief. And so in John chapter 3, what you have is this scene that takes place where this Jewish teacher named Nicodemus I may or may not refer to him as Nick for short, but we'll, we'll see how that goes. In my notes, I kept writing Nick because I was tired of trying to figure out how to spell Nicodemus. Um, so Nicodemus is his teacher. He's a Jewish teacher. He would have been someone who was formally trained on the Old Testament scriptures. He would have known them very well. He would have been an example or held up as an example to the Jewish people of how to live out the scriptures. Right? So he's a religious leader, a Jewish teacher. Well, the, the teachers have been talking among themselves, considering some of the things that Jesus has done. So far in John, what John has told us is Jesus was the Word, He became flesh, and then He dwelled among us. We, we've seen John tell us about how uh, John the Baptist pointed to Jesus as the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We, we saw the baptism of Jesus, where the Spirit comes down upon Jesus as a dove, and God the Father from heaven says, This is my beloved Son, and Him I'm pleased. 
In John chapter 2, we see Jesus as a, at a wedding, and, and the, the wedding feast, they run out of wine, and so his mom comes to him and asks him to do something about it, and so Jesus takes these cleansing, um, these cleansing barrels, if you will, and there's like 30-gallon barrels apiece, and he changes these 30-gallon barrels of water into some of the finest wine that there is. And then now we get to chapter 3. And, and he's going to continue to unfold some of these signs, but so far that's just what we've had in John. And, and in John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes, and it's very specific when he comes. He comes at night. He doesn't come during the day to approach Jesus. He comes at night. He's coming under the cloak of darkness. And he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, we know that you are a teacher from God. I mean, that's a great statement. Jesus, we're, we're listening to the things you say. We're watching the things you do. And we have come to the conclusion that you have come from God. And the implication is that we are not teachers from God. You are. There's clearly a difference in how we teach and the things that we're able to do and the way you teach and the things that you're able to do. Nicodemus does not ask a question. He just says, we know that you're a teacher from God. And then Jesus does what Jesus often does. And he starts the statement with, truly, truly, if you're King James, verily, verily. Because King James is how Paul and Jesus talked. Verily, verily, right? And, and what he's trying to say is, what I'm about to say is important. What I'm about to say is new to you. Clue in, pay attention. Truly, truly, he says, I say to you. And he starts to talk about how a person enters the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a huge theme throughout the Bible. It's a huge theme for Jesus. It's at the center of his message. He says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so he starts to explain to Nicodemus how a person enters the kingdom of God. But the problem for Nicodemus is this. This explanation that Jesus gives about how to enter the kingdom is not one that Nicodemus has heard before. It's not how Nicodemus believed or understood he and his friends were going to enter the kingdom of God. If you were a good Jew and you were raised in a good Jewish family, you likely developed the understanding and the belief that you, because you were a relative of Abraham, you would be entering the kingdom of God simply by your descendancy, by your ancestry, simply by who you were related to. And therefore, since everyone who was not a Jew, not related to Abraham, they would not enter the kingdom. So if you were outside of Jewish circles, you were a non-Jewish person, you were not likely to enter the kingdom of God. It was, it was as simple as that. Related to Abraham, enter the kingdom of God. Not related to Abraham, don't enter the kingdom of God. That's how the, the common Jewish person believed they would enter the kingdom. And that's what Jesus oftentimes had to come and correct. And so here... As Jesus is explaining how a person enters the kingdom of God, he says, you must be born again. Now, do you remember a couple weeks ago when we were in John, I said, John does something intentionally throughout his gospel where he picks words that can have two different meanings and, 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 and the context will support both meanings. And he often does that on purpose. That's what he's doing here. And so Jesus is speaking. He says, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you cannot enter it unless you are born again. At least that's how Nicodemus takes the word that Jesus uses. And so he explains that a person who is born again is, is able to enter into the kingdom, but that this born again, this rebirth, doesn't come about by being related to Abraham. 
doesn't come about because of who you are or anything that you do. It comes about from God above, right? And so when, when Nicodemus hears this, see, he clearly has an understanding that he was to enter the kingdom because of physical birth. Because you know the question he asks, how can a person be born a second time in his old age? He's clearly thinking as Jesus is talking about being born again, physical birth. Now, now Jesus is doing this on, um, on purpose because the imagery of physical birth is incredibly important here. And what Jesus is, is communicating to Nicodemus is that you have nothing to do with entering the kingdom of God. You contribute nothing. It has nothing to do with your birth. It has nothing to do with your relatives. It has nothing to do with the righteous way that you live. It has everything to do with God bringing that about, which is why Jesus uses the imagery of physical birth, right? Because you and I had nothing to do with our own birth. You were there, but you had nothing to do with it, right? And that imagery is important. And so Nicodemus asked that question, how can you be born again? Can you go back into your mother's womb a second time? See, he's listening to this going, this is ludicrous. That's when Jesus takes that second meaning of the word and he starts to clarify. Uh, he's not talking about being physically born to enter the kingdom. He's talking about a birth that comes from above. And he, he starts to shift that, that view for Nicodemus. And, and he starts to explain to him that the birth he's talking about to enter the kingdom is a birth that God gives. And I want to show you, as we, one more time before we move on, the gospel is broad enough to include the worst of sinners and narrow enough to exclude the most righteous of persons. I want to give us verse 14 and 15. We're not going to really dive into it. I just want you to see, before we get to the most well-known verse in the Bible, I want you to see what leads up to it. Because we have done ourselves a tremendous disservice when we simply memorize verses but don't eventually learn their context. And I hope this morning you're going to walk away with a richer, deeper understanding of the context and therefore the meaning of the most well-known verse in the Bible. So at the end of his talk with Nicodemus, Jesus says... And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so he's referencing a, a scene out of the book of Numbers, I believe, where, where there was a um, bunch of venomous vipers sent by God to bite the people, and they were dying because they were rebellious. And it's a really, it's a really weird story. But, um, so then he tells Moses, God tells Moses, I want you to make this, this, this serpent, this statue of a serpent, and I want you to raise it up. Lift it up. And everyone who looks upon that serpent in faith will be healed. Really weird story, right? But, but it's key in the history of Israel because now Jesus brings it back and he says, just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man, that's a way for Jesus to talk about himself, so must he be lifted up. So you can see the comparison Jesus is making. Serpent was lifted up. People looked upon the serpent and believed. Jesus, the Son of Man, he's going to be lifted up, which means he's going to die and raise from the dead. And the, the assumption is that then verse 15, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, that right there, whoever believes in him may have eternal life, is a revolutionary thought to Nicodemus. Because Jesus has just finished explaining how does a person enter the kingdom of God. According to Nick, it was, I'm born this, into this, this tradition, I'm born into this family, therefore I enter the kingdom of God. But Jesus says, no, 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 the kingdom of God is not just for Jewish people, and it's not about your physical relatives or your ancestry. It's about those who believe, which means it goes beyond the Jews. Revolutionary. 
Here's the question that Nicodemus would likely be asking. How is it that God can say that? How is it that God can do that? How is it that God can, can offer his kingdom and, and people can come into this kingdom? Whoever believes, it's not about being related to Abraham. It's now, it's just whoever believes. That's where verse 16 picks up. Here's why you have to know the context of verse 16. How does verse 16 start? For. That's a word that tells us it's continuing a conversation. For God. It's explaining something. Right? It would be really weird if you and I were in a conversation and I say, for I started my week this week on a good note. And you'd be like, what? Have you been listening to Old English or Shakespeare? You'd, you would be wondering what in the world I'm talking about because I would never start the beginning of a conversation and say, for this reason I did this. You'd want to know what's the context. That's why when you see a word like this, for, therefore, it's, it's telling you he's building on, he's continuing a conversation. And so now John is picking up this conversation that just took place between Nicodemus and Jesus. And he's going to explain to us, how is it that God now, the kingdom is for whoever believes? All right, we're going to spend more time on verse 16 than any of the other verses this morning for, for a probably clear reason. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. All right. For God so loved the world. This is the explanation for whoever believes in the Son of Man enters the kingdom. This is the explanation for how God can, can bring birth from above, spiritual birth, to people who aren't related physically to Abraham. Because it's not about physical birth. It's about God's love. It's not, about, it's not just about who I'm related to. It's not about my, 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 my nationality. It's about God's love. It's God's kingdom, and so God has the choice as to how he brings people into the kingdom. And it's not by physical birth. It's by spiritual birth. For God so loved the world. And so rather than reading for God so loved, what we typically do, because we do this, we oftentimes come to the Bible and we read it through our lens of culture. We don't do that with any other type of book. If you're reading like some Shakespeare book or you're reading Dante's Inferno or you're reading um, Huckleberry Finn or, or something from a different time period, you are taught and, and you, you probably just kind of know that when I'm reading that, if there's strange words or they're talking in ways that I don't talk, I don't, I don't talk similarly, then I need to understand what it meant in their day so that I can understand what they're saying. I don't come to Huckleberry Finn or Dante's Inferno and, 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 and see a word that's familiar to me and then impose my understanding based on current culture today on that word. Instead, I learn what did that word mean at that time as they were using it. Okay, we have to do the same thing, but for some reason, when we come to the Bible, we don't do that. But the Bible was written several hundred thousand, uh, in some cases thousands, actually it's all thousands of years ago, right? And so we can't assume that the words mean the same thing. So oftentimes we go, for God so loved, and we think it means for God so loved, and I've got warm fuzzies. Because he's so loved. And we think that so loved, and we might even say he's so loved, it's about how great he loved the world, how big he loved the world, how magnificently he loved the world. It was an extreme type of love, and we kind of read it that way, but that's not what it's saying. It's not about how 
big God loved the world, but it's about the manner in which he loved the world. And so some of your updated translations, if you're reading like the new the NIV, if it's the 2011 or higher, um, if you're reading the Net Bible um, or, or some of those more updated translations, a lot of times they're going to capture that and they're going to say, for God loved the world in this way. In other words, what, what John is telling us is this is how God showed his love to the world. For God so loved, he loved the world in this way. It would be similar to Paul's statement when he says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. In other words, he's about to tell us how God shows his love for us. And then Paul would say, Jesus came into the world to die while we were still sinners. For God loved the world in this way. And then this word world, and we've talked about this briefly, that as you track the word world in John, and, and, and keep this in mind for the culture, they didn't have a concept of a globe, a sphere where, where people exist. That's not what they would have been thinking when they came across the word world. They wouldn't have, have read it the way you and I re read it. There's different ways they could have understood world, but as we talked about John, the word world in John is oftentimes negative, is very, ever, uh, very rarely, if ever, neutral. He talks about the world in a negative way. The world was that, that, that group of people, that creation of God that is now in rebellion against God. And so when John talks about the world, absolutely it includes people, but not in the sense of a, of a globe and every person who exists on the planet for all time. That's not a concept they would have brought to it. It's, it's, a, it's a fine point, but it's important for us to understand that in their mind, when they heard the word world, and as John was using it, he's trying to communicate some specific things. One, this is the world that rebelled against God. Which is why in chapter 1 of John it was so significant that, that the word who created all things became flesh. And he entered into the world that he created and the world that was rebelling against him. That's the magnificence of what God has done in the incarnation. And in Jesus coming as, as a person is that he entered into the world, the world that was rebelling against him. Light coming into darkness, right? That was two weeks ago. We looked at that. But, but also in this concept of world is if I'm a good Jew... And I'm thinking about the kingdom. I'm thinking about me as a Jew, right? And when John uses the word world here in verse 16, for God so loved the world, it's very significant that he's not saying for God so loved the people of Israel, for God so loved the, uh, the, the Jewish people. He's saying for God so loved the world, which means it goes beyond a certain type of people. For God so loved every type of people. It's not about race, it's not about ethnicity, it's not about nationality, it's not about physical relation to Abraham. No, the reason that God said the kingdom is for whoever believes is because God so loved the world. It goes beyond you, Nicodemus. It goes beyond the people of Israel. And so what, what John is doing here is he's, he's expanding their, uh, Nicodemus' thought, or what Jesus is doing, he's expanding Nicodemus' thought and, and understanding about who the kingdom is for. It's God's choice. It's God's kingdom. It's God's choice how people enter the kingdom. And it's not about physical birth. It's about spiritual birth. And he says, for God loved the world in this way. So before we go any further, the gospel, because we're talking about the gospel, this good news that Jesus has come and he has lived a life in obedience to God and he has died a death in obedience to God on behalf of guilty people. He, he's going to raise from the dead so that those who then believe in him might have life and enter the kingdom. The gospel, right, summed up. We're talking about the gospel. The gospel goes beyond most every social barrier that we would construct. 
Everyone. If, if you're proclaiming a gospel and that same gospel can't be proclaimed here in El Reno, Oklahoma and in Zambia, then you're not proclaiming the true gospel. If you can't proclaim this gospel in, in, in South Africa or in Australia or in, in some remote parts of the world and different cultures, if, you, if it only works here, it's not the gospel. Because for God so loved the world goes beyond just one culture. It goes beyond just one ethnicity. It goes beyond the social barriers. The other thing is that this goes beyond what most people in that day would have expected, that men enter the kingdom of God. Men are in privileged position. But the beauty of the gospel is that it elevates people to the same level. It doesn't matter what your background is, what your ethnicity is, what your upbringing is, what your formal training is, what your gender is. It's God showing his love for the world. It goes beyond our set of understanding of social boundaries. All right, here's how he loved the world. Here's how he showed his love for the world. He gave his only son. Now, older translations will say he, he gave his only begotten son, right? Uh, most updated translations don't go begotten, one, because we don't say begotten, but two, because we've learned more about the Greek word behind it, and it was a mistranslation based on lack of evidence. And so as they continue to get more and more manuscripts, we have thousands, tens of thousands of Greek manuscripts. They found out that the word they thought was behind what was translated only begotten, it was, it was a very similar word, but it wasn't quite the same. And so King James says only begotten. The problem there, and we've always just explained our way around it, is God wasn't, uh, Jesus wasn't begotten. He wasn't born, right? And we've always kind of had to explain our way around well, how do we get around that language? And we've always had ways to explain it, right? But now we understand the word there, is, it's actually related to a different word. It's more about, it's not so much about physical birth, it's about ethnicity, right? And so it's about uniqueness. It's about um, one of a kindness. And so again, updated translations will say his one unique son, or his, that's why we got one and only son. Here's, what, here's what, what's being said here. For God gave his one unique son. In other words, there's no one else like him. Why would he say that? Why would he have to clarify that this is God's unique son? This is the unique son of God. Do you remember anywhere in the biblical text that we've looked at where sons of God have shown up before? Genesis 6. And if you remember the story of Genesis 6, the sons of God in that story did some immoral things. But they were called sons of God. It was a classification. It's about representing God. Son is a word that is oftentimes used to represent God. So if I'm a son of God, I represent God. If I'm a son of my father, I represent my father. It's about image bearing. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, what John is pointing out is God gave his unique son. There's no other one like this, like Jesus. Why? Because this one is not created. This one is... It's not like those other sons of God that, that might have been called to mind. This one is not immoral. This one's not seeking his own interests. This one's not rebelling against God. This is the one of a kind. This is God become human. There's no one, no one else like him. His one and only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Again, revolutionary for Nicodemus. It's whoever believes in him, right? It's God showed his love in this way. He gave his son that those who believe in him, those are the ones who aren't going to perish, but instead have eternal life. How do I know what perish and eternal life means? Well, just the context alone. 
Parish talks about death. It can be about, about um, no longer existing. Sometimes it's translated that way. It can, it can be uh, about annihilation. But given our context, what we look at is it's put in contrast to eternal life. So if the ones who believe get eternal life, then those who don't believe, they don't get eternal life. What they get is the opposite, which is eternal death. That's the perishing. Now, we have, again, done a disservice here because we oftentimes bring things to the text that aren't there. And, and, it, and, it, and it may be slight, but again, we, we read things into it. And, and I'm not trying to be pointed here by any means, but I, I want you to see the significance of this whoever. And in and, and the Greek, it's just those who believe. I want you to understand that they didn't have the same kind of concept of choice that we often have. We walk around and we have our own way of thinking about human choice. It's foreign to the Bible, the way that we think about human choice. And that's not what's here. All that's, being try, all that's trying to be communicated here, it's not, it's not about human choice. What's trying to be communicated here is God's choice. That, it, that it's God's kingdom and that God is the one who has determined how people enter that kingdom and it's through belief. And it's not bound by ethnicity or relation to, to an ancestor, but it's those who believe. That's what's there. And so when, when we read into it something that's not there, we're reading into it something that's more Western-shaped, more Enlightenment-shaped, and it does a disservice because then we make a verse like this that is rich in context, and we make it a proof text for something that John had no concept of. Because if you find in the Bible, our understanding of, of human choice is, is a foreign concept in the Bible. Because we think of human choice and we think, I'm completely free and nothing influences me. And yet, even just in the book of John, as we're going to see next week, you find people are held accountable and yet God is sovereign. And those two are held in tension. Never in balance. Always in tension. People are held accountable, but God is still sovereign. And that's, that's a both and way of thinking. And in the West here, in America and Canada and, and England, people that are influenced by those, we think either or. The Bible thinks both and. God is both sovereign and you're accountable. And we don't think that way, and so we try to reconcile it, and then we add stuff. That's not what John meant. I just want you to know that because the context is helpful to understand that that's not something God, John would have been emphasizing. He's not thinking like we think. He's just trying to say, Nicodemus, it goes beyond you. It goes beyond you. All right. We're not going to spend as much time on the rest of these verses, but he goes on. So we quote John 3.16 so often. I love quoting John 3.17. So you go in John 3.16, and we love John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And verse 17 picks right up and continues explaining, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Nicodemus would have had a mindset that when the Messiah, the promised one, comes, he's going to come and he's going to bring the Jewish people into the kingdom and he's going to bring condemnation for everyone else. And so when verse 17 shows up and, and, and John is saying, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn it. He's going to explain to us why in just a moment. He didn't send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save the world through him. Nicodemus would be thinking, wait a minute, no, no, no. No, that's not the way I thought. But again, Jesus is flipping the paradigm that Nicodemus has on his head. God didn't send Jesus in the world to condemn the world. Now when Jesus comes back the second time, he'll come in judgment. But he's not coming in judgment this time. He didn't come to judge the world. Why? Why did he not come to condemn the world? Because verse 18. Verse 18 says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Okay, we got that. 
Okay, he's, he's really just restating verse 16. If you believe in Jesus, you're not condemned. You're, you're not going to experience the wrath of God. You are not going to perish. You're not going to experience eternal death. He's just restating verse 16. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Do you see the word that makes a significant difference there? Whoever does not believe is condemned already. Jesus did not come into a neutral world. He came into a world that was rebelling against God. The world was already condemned. That's why Jesus didn't come into the world the first time to condemn the world. There's no need for him to do that. The world is already condemned because of the sin of Adam that has been passed on to all of humanity. You and I are not born neutral before God. And then somewhere along the way, we make a sinful choice and therefore we become sinfully corrupted. No, we are born already naturally toward ourselves and not God. We are already born corrupted and infected by sin because the sin of Adam has been passed on to all of humanity. So Jesus is not coming into a neutral world. He's coming into a world that's already condemned, which is why this is even more significant that God, the Word, became flesh and dwelled among them. Because He's coming into a world that is already justly condemned. God would have been completely just if He were to just condemn all of creation and not send His Son into the world to save anybody. He would have been just because people had, had been rebelling against Him. People would have, have been justly condemned for their sin. And yet the beauty of the gospel is that the word became flesh and entered into the rebellious world, became one of the creation so that he might save some. And who does he save? The ones who believe. And so he doesn't have to come to condemn the world. It's already condemned. But as John says here, it's condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. In other words, if you end up in this life not responding by believing in Christ, you're responsible for that. But the people that, that find themselves perishing, find themselves in eternal death, every one of them is going to be there justly. There will not be any claims to God not being fair because anything that God will do it's going to be fair. It's going to be more than fair. And we, we cry out for, for God to be fair. And if we're being honest, we don't really want God to be fair. Because fairness would be the world's already condemned. Grace is Jesus comes into the world that was rebelling against him so that he might become like them, so that he might die for them, so that some might believe in him. For God did not send his son in the world to to condemn the world, but to save the world. So that's a correction of what Nicodemus is thinking. Then 19, 20, and 21, and so, and this is the judgment. So what's the basis upon which people are judged? It's that the light has come into the world. Jesus has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because the works were evil. And it's not, it's not telling us that because people did evil works, they loved darkness. No, it's saying they loved darkness, and the way you know that is because their, their works were evil. That's why people chose not to, to accept Christ because they love the darkness more than light. That's the grounds upon which judgment will be issued by God. So if you find yourself at the end of this life and you've rejected Christ, the basis upon which you will find yourself apart from God for the rest of eternity is because you've loved darkness more than you loved light. And how do you know if a person loves darkness? Because it's shown in the way they live their life. 
We go on in verse 20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Why? Because we don't want it to be exposed. You know this, I know this. Why, why do I not come and confess my sin to God? Because I don't want to be exposed. Why is it that in 1 John, he has to say, walk in the light as he is in the light? Because he knows the sinful tendencies of us as people is I would draw into the darkness. Because God, if you catch me, then I might get judged. I might get punished. But the beauty is that in Christ, there's no condemnation. And so those who are in Christ are free to walk in the light just as God is in the light, right? But those who hide in darkness, it, it boils down to a very simple thing because they don't want the darkness to be exposed. And I think every one of us in this room have had moments like that where we're going, I don't want to be caught. I don't want to be exposed. That's living in darkness. Verse 21, our last verse this morning. But whoever does what is true comes to the light. But look how he explains the reason for them coming to the light. See, Nicodemus, Jewish teacher, righteousness is showing, it's living before people. It's all about external righteousness for a lot of these people that Jesus encountered. But here he says something different. Those who, who do what is true come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. It's not about you. When you do things that line up with God's character, it's not about you. It's God working in you. It's, it's as Philippians 2, verse 12 and 13 talk about. He says in, in Philippians 2, 12, um, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And in verse 13, he says, for it is God who both wills and works within you. And, and what Jesus is saying here is that it's not those who, who live according to what's true, who come to the light, they don't do it so that other people see it. They don't do it so that they can prove they're righteous. They do it so that people will see, I'm doing this in the Lord. They, they do it so that they can see that this is about God and it's not about me. So go back to my, my, my statement here. Maybe this will make a little more sense now. The gospel, it's broad enough to include the worst of sinners. That's whoever. Nicodemus, it's not just Jews. And in fact, I don't think it's an accident that chapter four, we find a woman who's divorced, who's living immorally, and who's a Samaritan, and she believes. I mean, that's four things right there that fall under the whoever that Nicodemus would have had no category for. You're a woman, no. You're, 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 you're divorced, no. You're living immorally, no, by immorally, I mean she was not living with a man that was her husband, right? And that's called out. And yet she believes she's a Samaritan, half-breed. That's the, that's the whoever, right? And then you keep going in chapter 4, and you've got this official of the king. He works for the king, King Herod, and he believes. And then in chapter 5, you have a man who is, who is uh, uh, unable to walk. He's physically disabled. And in that culture, if you were physically disabled, it was believed you were cursed by God. You've got some secret sin. And yet he believes. But you know who doesn't believe? The gospel is broad enough to include the worst of sinners. That's the whoever. But it's narrow enough to exclude the most righteous of persons. You know who the most righteous of persons were? Religious teachers. 
those who expected that because of their privilege, and don't, don't let that word carry all the baggage it's currently carrying, but they expected that their privilege, their, their ethnicity related to Abraham, their education maybe, their health, whatever it was, that's what was gonna get them into the kingdom. And they lived that out before people. Self-righteous people. The gospel is narrow enough to exclude them because it's not about the way I live my life. It's not about who I'm related to. It's not about who I belong to or what family I was born into. It's about those who believe in Christ. The gospel's broad enough to include the worst of sinners, but it's narrow enough to exclude the most righteous of persons. Self-righteous people are the most blind people you'll ever meet spiritually because they don't believe they're in need of the Savior. And maybe they even believe they already know the Savior because they know about him or they know all the stories about him. They attend church because of what they give or what they sacrifice. And it's all about them. And we read these verses and we tend to insert things that are about us. Well, it's about what I do and what I choose and how I respond. But that's foreign to the text. It's the exact opposite what John's trying to say. He's trying to say it's not about anything about you. It's about what God has done and how he has chosen for people to enter into the kingdom. And so we've got to be careful because we have such subtle self-righteousness that creeps in. So subtle. And we brag about things and we'll say, I was saved by grace. But then we'll, we'll, we'll brag to people under humble um, you know, um, words that I believed when I was five. Emphasis on the I believed. And, and somehow the fact that we believed when we were five makes us better than the person who believed when they were 28 or when they were 48 or when they were 68. And we insert pride there and we, we somehow think, so therefore I am better. I'm further along. And God in his grace, the person who was saved by five may have been stunted in his growth somewhere along the way. And the person who is saved at 60 is on a rapid trail because God in his grace can do that. Because at the foot of the cross, it's a level. And it's all grace. And whether you needed a lot of grace because you reached 70 and you had a whole life of sin behind you, or you were five and you had barely lived your life, you still needed grace. That's what John 3 is about. It's about God bringing about a birth from above. And so God help us when we slip pride into it and we somehow boast about what I've done or what I brought to the table, even when it's so subtle in our hearts. I bring nothing. I contribute nothing to what God does for me in Christ. That's why the image of a new birth is so significant. You and I contributed nothing to our physical birth. The imagery is important. We contribute nothing to our spiritual birth. God brings that about. I think it's significant that as far as we know, the conversation ended there. Nicodemus was not pushed. He was not... He was not um, led in any kind of prayer and that's not wrong to do I just I'm saying this because so many of us have grown up in a culture where this is how we think we have to to share the gospel this is how we think we have to proclaim it and I want to break you free from molds 
where you think this is the only way I can do it. Those are good tools. God can use them. But if you stick only with these tools, I want you to see that's, that's not the biblical model that Jesus followed. He was comfortable enough to walk away from Nicodemus. And you and I might feel the pressure, maybe even motivated by pride, to seal the deal right there. Jesus didn't feel that pressure. He walked away. Nicodemus becomes a believer later. But I can't help anyone believe. I cannot argue with you enough to make you believe. I cannot uh, convince you enough, answer all your questions. I can't do that. You can't do that. And so as far as we know, Jesus walks away at that point. I want you to be free to follow the Spirit in the way that you proclaim the gospel. Because if you proclaim the gospel, if you proclaim what God has done through Christ and, and, and how people, re oh, we lost it. And how people respond to the gospel. And if you, if you proclaim to people what, what happens to people who don't respond to the gospel, you let God do his work. You let the spirit do the work of convicting that you cannot do and you'll be far better. Just follow the Spirit. What do you, I told you a story last week, um, two weeks ago, when we were talking about John, about a guy at Tinker Air Force Base where, where I had visited with, and he was ripe, right? He just sat down, and he says, I need to change my life is immoral in this way, this way, this way, this way, and this way, and I know I need to change. That's why I came to the chapel to visit with the chaplain, so what do I do? Right? It was perfect, right? I didn't pray with him afterwards about accepting Christ. I prayed for him. I didn't lead him in a sinner's prayer. Sometimes I do that, sometimes I don't. I didn't. I didn't say, after I explained the gospel, do you want to believe today? Why? Because I was reading the situation, I was trying to be sensitive to the spirit, and I could tell I'm hitting this guy with something he's either never heard before or he knows it all too well. And I'm not about to force something. I'm comfortable enough with God doing what God does to say, you know how to get a hold of me? Here's my contact information if you have questions, if you want to visit again. And guess what? When, when God does the work that God alone does, if that person's going to believe, they're going to believe. And it doesn't matter if I, I sealed the deal in that moment or if I prayed with him in that moment. I'm comfortable enough walking away from that going, God, now you do what you do best. He has what he needs to understand. Help him to understand. I want you to be free. But I want you to know this because it transcends what we like to believe about God and about his gospel and for some of you this morning some of you this is the most refreshing thing you have ever heard because what you're hearing is something that's different perhaps from the God that you had walked away from at some point or is different from the God that you've been led to believe exists but who could never accept anyone like you if he only knew, and he does, your past or your decisions, or some of you are going, it's not about me. It's not about the choices I've made in my life. It's not about the, the things that are in my past. It's about God bringing about this new birth through faith in Christ. Some of you, that's the most refreshing thing you've ever heard, and I pray that it sets you free this morning. 
Others of you are having a hard time swallowing what I'm saying, so I'll extend the invite that I always do. Send me an email. Let's visit. Uh, Let's talk about where you feel like you disagree. I'm more than happy to have those conversations. Some of you oftentimes have those conversations with me, and I always welcome them. Always. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful to you. And I, and I don't even feel, God, that I've been clear. And so, God, I pray that you would do what I have been unclear on and that, it, that I would not be the stumbling block to what the Spirit wants to say this morning. So, God, do the work that needs to be done to overcome me so that your word and your gospel rings clear. And deepen our love and our understanding for who you are and how how your love is shown to us in Christ. Just what a marvelous, marvelous love it is. A love that goes beyond one type of person and says, whoever believes. And then God, let the gospel not be something we believe and then move on and grow past. Lord, help us. Let the gospel be something that we continually cling to, that continually shapes and and changes the way we live and the way we view the world and we view others and the way we treat people. And let it be something that that we grow in our, our deeper understanding of. That we would not be people guilty of believing that the gospel is simply a phrase to be believed and to grow past but that it is the life-changing message that is centered around events in history where, God, you stepped in. So have your way with us, we pray. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. All right. See you guys next week.